Welcome to Oncopharma. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is Thanksgiving week here uh, at Mountain Home, Tennessee in the United States of America. And Thanksgiving week makes me think of two things. One, obviously the, the first Thanksgiving where the foreigners needed the help of the natives with food and stuff, and that's great. And the second thing is will probably happen later in the week is um, a term used in politics and in public relations called taking out the trash. So uh, if you're listening to this before Friday, say you're in the airport, got a, you know, you're traveling, you're in the car you know, to go, parents, grandparents, whatever. Uh, my guess is if you listen to this before Friday, something's going to happen on Friday, and there's going to be some politician, some large company is going to release a statement that uh, would have been the lead story in the news any other day but because it's Thanksgiving week, no one's paying attention. That's called taking out the trash. Well, that's not what we're doing at Oncofarm. We've got a lot to talk about, but I think uh, it's all pertinent, uh, including, um, well, maybe the last two drug approvals at the very end of the pod aren't truly pertinent, but they are kind of um, unique mechanisms of action that might have a role uh, later down the road. So let's get straight to it. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about uh, is a, a bone marrow transplant study, which is not something I don't think I've ever talked about on the pod because I don't do BMT or um, uh, hematopoietic cell transplantation. Uh, Ironically, when I was leaving uh, residency uh, over a decade ago, that would have been the job I am most qualified for, would have been like a BMT pharmacist. Now it's probably the job that I am least qualified for in all of oncology pharmacy. So this was uh, published in Blood, uh, um, published online before, uh, before actual publication, early release. Uh, and it is uh, about the treatment of acute graft-versus-host disease, and it's done by uh, the Bomer Transplant Clinical Trials Network. Uh, so it's BMTCTN1501 is the name of the study. So it's a cooperative group study uh, that's funded by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute as well as the National Cancer Institute. And the, particip- the participating centers included the Cleveland Clinic, Duke, Emory, uh, Fred Hutchinson out in Seattle, Lee Moffitt in uh, Tampa Mayo Clinic, Medical College of Wisconsin, Mount Sinai, uh, Ohio State University, University of Florida, University of Kansas, University of Michigan, University of Minnesota, MD Anderson, Vanderbilt, Virginia Commonwealth University, and then Washington University in St. Louis, among others. So a lot of big transplant centers got together, did this study. It's a phase two study of sirolimus versus prednisone in the initial treatment of graft-versus-host disease. So for years and years and years, all we knew about graft-versus-host disease is you treat it with high-dose corticosteroids, you know, like two migs per kg per day. Uh, After that, we didn't know what to do. Now we've got a couple of drugs actually FDA-approved for graft-versus-host disease, such as rixolitinib and uh, and abrutinib. Well, this is looking at sirolimus, the mTOR inhibitor, versus prednisone in the initial treatment. So let's look how they did this. So uh, they had 122 uh, patients, and the sample size they wanted was actually 120, and this was not for purposes of compare, comparing superiority or even non-inferiority. This was purely trying to get uh, basically a, a, a fairly tight uh, 95% confident or a 90% conversable of plus or minus 15%. The primary endpoint was complete response and partial response, kind of overall response. Now, patients were stratified. Well, they weren't stratified, but to be included, you had to have... Um, uh, low-risk uh, graft-versus-host disease, or sorry, not low-risk, standard risk. So there's standard risk, and there's high risk based on the Minnesota criteria, which is something new that uh, was not a thing um, when I was uh, doing this. So basically, you had to have either a grade 1 to 3 skin only, graft-versus-host disease, grade 1 or 2 
GI tract only, or grade one to three skin and grade one GI tract. Uh, There's maybe one patient that had grade one liver that was included. So mostly about half of these patients had mild graft versus host disease, grade one of the skin only. And that a grade one graft versus host of the skin is that less than 25% of the body surface area is affected. So they had to have that, that standard risk by the Minnesota criteria. And then they also had to be considered a, a score of one or two on the Ann Arbor scale. And we have so many of these Ann Arbor scales. Um, but this is an algorithm that uses two biomarkers, REG3 and ST2. And this is a, a send out that takes two to three days to come back that apparently not every transplant center uh, uses, although the ones in this study obviously did. So patients had to have standard risk by this Minnesota criteria for graft versus host disease. And then once it was confirmed, they were either grade score of one or two. And I think this score, only, this scale only goes to three on that Ann Arbor scale. Then they were included. Ultimately, you had 64 patients randomized to prednisone two mg per kick per day and 58 randomized to sirolimus. Um, now, the baseline demographics are pretty well distributed between the two groups, with the exception of three things I'll point out. One is, was the source of stem cells a relative or not? Uh, that was just under 40% in the sirolimus arm versus just under 50% in the prednisone arm. And the graft source, and 81% of patients in the sirolimus arm, it was peripheral blood, uh, 71% in prednisone. So if you look at those two criteria, you had more peripheral blood, graft source, and sirolimus, and lower rates of related donors. So the sirolimus arm looked like maybe they were set up for more graft versus host disease. And uh, the Konoski performance status of 90 or 100, basically the best you could have, there were more of those in the prednisone arm than the sirolimus arm numerically, 66% versus 45%. So uh, take on point for that. Things set up somewhat, not on purpose, uh, just based on the way the randomization happened, in favor of the prednisone arm in the study. So here are the takeaways from results. Uh, you know, complete response, partial response rates uh, were, you know, appeared similar. Now, numerically, it was higher for prednisone. So 73% complete or partial response with prednisone compared to 65% with sirolimus. Now, it's not powered for some purity. So what they're saying is, uh, you know, sirolimus seems to be as good as prednisone, but it's not powered to detect superiority or even non-inferiority. So that's why, uh, you know, the authors do say um, we need a phase three study now. Um, to compare this. So this sets the stage for a big phase three study potential between sirolimus and prednisone for these standard risk graft versus host disease patients, which could be practice changing. Second thing they found, or the second takeaway I want to point out, is that this is steroid sparing. So obviously the folks randomized to sirolimus, uh, they end up receiving fewer corticosteroids. And there are a whole bunch of benefits by that. And what they looked at was by the end of uh, either a month or 28 days, were you on less than 0.25 mg per kg of prednisone? Two-thirds of the patients in the sirolimus arm were on less than that versus um, about a third in prednisone. So it was steroid sparing. Uh, and that certainly uh, is useful as we try to minimize steroids and the risk of invasive fungal infections and such. And then, of course, there was less hyperglycemia in the sirolimus arm. There was greater uh, patient-reported outcomes as, with regards to quality of life in the sirolimus arm. But there was more thrombotic microangiopathy, uh, or this kind of drug-induced hemolytic anemia, was more prevalent in the sirolimus arm, 10.3% versus 1.6% uh, in, the, in the prednisone arm. So... Like I said, this sets the stage for a potentially practice-changing phase three study. Uh, I asked uh, a couple uh, colleagues who are BMT pharmacists their comments. One said, quote, eh, don't care for it. Um, and the other said, you know, we're going to talk about it as a team. This might be practice-changing, um, um, you know, 
perhaps we would just use it for skin only disease since that was the biggest uh, demographic. Uh, but you do also have to consider the fact that these were all patients who received, you know, um, their baseline graft versus host disease prevention was a calcium inhibitor plus methotrexate, which is probably most common. But that's not what all institutions use for, for graft versus host disease prophylaxis. And for, for instance, where I trained, we use cyclosporin and mycophilamophotil. So probably couldn't extrapolate these results to our patients that we took care of. Um, one of the pharmacists I talked to um, where they trained, they used tacrolimus and strolimus. So those results from this study wouldn't apply to that patient population, likely either just because there were di different patients uh, or different graft versus host disease prophylactic strategies to begin with. So it's the first BMT study we've talked about, and it might be the last. If I don't know what I'm talking about, you let me know. We'll correct it on a subsequent podcast. Or if you've got some else to add to the discussion, let me know. Next article I want to talk about is the team M study, T-E-A-M-M, -M, and this was published by Drayson and colleagues in Lancet Oncology uh, very recently, in 2019, uh, this month, I believe. Uh, and this is, title is Levofloxacin Prophylaxis in Newly Diagnosed Multimyeloma Patients, a placebo-controlled, randomized, you know, phase three study. So this is about levofloxacin, a drug that we hate? No. It's a drug we love, but it's a drug we love to hate. That's it. Just almost almost 1,000 patients, 977 randomized 50-50 to either levofloxacin 500 a day for 12 weeks or placebo. And they had to start this within 12 weeks, start levofloxacin or placebo within 12 weeks of starting their myeloma treatment. And this was done in 93 uh, hospitals in the United Kingdom, uh, and again, within 14 days of starting treatment. Now, uh, just to give you a sense of the demographics, 54% of patients were planned to go on to high-dose autologous stem cell transplant and 43% of patients would uh, go on to receive a thalidomide-based regimen. Uh, that must be a, a, a UK thing. We don't use thalidomide a lot here in the States, so applicability here to the US may be a little bit different. Um, you know, most of our patients would get a bortezomib and uh, lidalidomide uh, induction regimen, at least at the time the study was done. Uh, so we had about uh, 500 patients in each arm, and the primary endpoint here was time to febrile episode or death, or febrile episode with death in the first 12 weeks. So it's a composite endpoint, basically looking at uh, fever or death. Uh, so the rates of fever or death in the first 12 weeks were 19% with levofloxacin versus 27% with placebo. That was statistically significant, p-value of 0.0018. 1% of patients died in the first 12 weeks in the levofloxacin group compared to 3% in the placebo group. And if you look at deaths uh, at one year, kind of overall survival one year, less than 1% in both groups. In fact, exactly 0.8% in both groups. Uh, so it did de decrease fever, probably does. So you would say that levofloxacin for newly diagnosed myeloma patients in the UK receiving uh, probably thalidomide-based regimens, uh, there was less morbidity with levofloxacin prophylaxis compared to placebo. No difference in death. Um, and it did not appear to be any r increased risk of what we would, of course, worry about, which would be uh, bacteria resistance or resistance. So there were similar rates of C. diff, ESBL producing uh, uh, enterobacteriaceae and MRSA between both groups. Wasn't reported if there was an increase in fluoroquinolone resistance, but you'd have to bet that there probably was. Uh, now, there was a fair amount of patients in the study that received trimethoprim and sulfamethoxyl for PCP prophylaxis. They did control for that, and there was still a statistically significant difference for the primary endpoint. Um, I'm not sure this is practice changing, but it's useful to pass along in something that uh, I think you should be aware of, especially if you take care of myeloma patients. 
the third thing I want to talk about is the FDA approval for a calibrutinib for CLL and SLL. Now this is very much a me too approval. Abrutinib was already previously approved for that. Uh, this approval is based on two studies, the Elevate TN study, which is published in Blood, the abstract is anyway, I think it'll be presented at ASH. Uh, that's in previously untreated CLL, and it's compared to uh, uh, calibrutinib versus calibrutinib plus obinutuzumab or obinutuzumab plus chlorambucil. Again, a drug nobody uses for CLL. That was in the first line setting, and then the ASCEND study was in basically the second line setting. Uh, but the real question we'd have to have here is what about calibrutinib versus abrutinib? Because people have been using abrutinib, people like abrutinib. It uh, seems to be uh, going uh, pretty good. Um, so if you want more information about calibrutinib, I would refer you, the listener, to the very first Oncopharm podcast from November 1st, 2017, uh, which was about calibrutinib's initial approval for mantle cell lymphoma and kind of how it compares uh, to abrutinib. You can also listen to last week's episode a little bit. Now, there is one study uh, published in Blood Advances uh, in May of this year, 2019, uh, by a Juan et al. and colleagues. 35 patients who were intolerant to abrutinib and then received a calibrutinib. Either the standard dose 100 BID or 200 daily. Not sure where that dose came from. They don't talk about it too much in that study from what I saw. But basically, they looked at patients who were intolerant to abrutinib and how they do on um, a calibrutinib. Now, these patients that were intoler intolerant to abrutinib, most of them, the reason for intolerance was rash at 24%, followed by arthralgia at 18%, diarrhea at 15%, fatigue at 12%, a hemorrhage at 12%. And of these patients who had uh, an adverse event that made them intolerant to abrutinib, when they switched to a calibrutinib, in two-thirds of the time, they didn't have a recurrence of that adverse event. But in one-third, they did, 36% specifically. Again, you're only talking 35 patients. You're talking, what, you know, maybe 11, you know, 12, 13 patients uh, that uh, that had the same toxicity with abrutinib when they were rechallenged with a different BTK inhibitor being a calibrutinib. It's only in a 35. Really need to see more, more stuff published on a calibrutinib after abrutinib. Um, certainly, if you're intolerant to abrutinib, it makes sense to try a different BTK inhibitor. The real question is one superior to the other, and that's a study that I'm not going to hold my breath on, but one that we need. The fourth thing that I want to talk about is the, uh, the publication of the FLORA study. Uh, this is the big OC Mertinib paper, uh, or OC Mertinib publication. The final overall survival results were published um, November 21st in the New England Journal of Medicine. And we've talked about this before um, in our ESMO wrap-up, but this is looking at, of course, uh, EGFR mutated patients with non-small cell lung cancer, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, either exon 19 deletion or the exon 21 mutation, the L858R. So 560 seven patients, 66 patients were randomized either to OC Mertinib or standard TKI, which was Erlotinib or Gefitinib. Uh, most patients at 66% got Gefitinib, the rest Erlotinib. Median overall survival, final results, 38.6 months median overall survival with OC Mertinib, which is about seven months longer than the median overall survival with standard Gefitinib or Erlotinib, which was 31.8 months, hazard ratio 0 0.8, and a 95.05 percent confidence interval 0 0.64 to 1.00 with a p-value 0.046. The pre-specified alpha in this secondary analysis was an alpha of 0.0495, which is just higher than the p-value they got. So uh, even though the p-value is 1.00, probably it's a rounding issue. So, you know, I guess it's statistically significant. 
um, even with that p-value equal to 1. And the 95.05% confidence interval is not something I've ever read or heard of. They do explain it in their uh, their statistical analysis section of the, of the publication, um, saying that uh, they did that because of basically their, their alpha spending function. Although I know I've read other papers with like an, uh, an O'Brien Fleming spending function, and they still report a 95 report a 95% confidence interval. So I'm not sure uh, the validity of that as someone who's not a biostatistician. Uh, but there are other reasons to take these results maybe with a grain of salt. So there are of course the previously noted concerns of this study with you know the lack of mandatory CNS screening for you know with MRIs at baseline to rule out CNS results and whether or not they even got uh, you know radiation to the brain or things like that. Uh, there was also a protocol amendment uh, that was required after patients had been uh, accrued on the study for five months to allow crossover to OC Mertinib. Uh, so this is one of the big flaws in the study is that only 31% of patients in the gefitinib or erlotinib are crossed over to OC-mertinib. And it's really too bad that it wasn't designed to do OC-mertinib followed by erlotinib versus, you know, erlotinib followed by OC-mertinib or OC-mertinib followed by chemo versus erlotinib, gefitinib followed by OC-mertinib because this is a disease where you're, we expect patients to get a couple lines of treatment. So only 31% crossed over to OC Mertinib, which is really unfortunate. Now, what we've learned in these final overall survival results is the heterogeneity of the effect here. And this is with regards to uh, race and exon 19 versus exon 21 status. So the benefit was limited to non-Asians and it was limited to patients with exon 19 deletion. So let's look at this a little bit closer. So and about 45% of all patients in the study had an exon 19 deletion about, sorry, no, no, let's take that back. Of all EGFR mutated non-small cell lung cancer, in about 45% of cases, exon 19, 40% in L85AR exon 21 mutation. So the hazard ratio for the L85AR was one. It's not too significant, composite interval is 0.7 to 1.4. It's only in the exon 19 subgroup where the hazard ratio is 0.68, and you saw a composite interval of 0.51 to 0.9. So the benefit, the overall survival benefit of OC Mertinib was only in these exon 19 patients. Now, if you look at the progression-free survival publication from about a year and a half ago or a year ago in New England Journal of Medicine, there was a trend in PFS favoring exon 19. That hazard ratio is 0.43 with exon 19 versus 0.51 with the L85R. Now, both of those confidence intervals were statistically significant. So it wasn't in the PFS that there appeared to be a big difference. It was in the overall survival difference, which makes me think that the second line therapy is what's accounting for this overall survival heterogeneity, not first line treatment with the drug, okay? Which is important because ultimately what we're most interested in is, is overall survival. Now, when you look at race, hazard ratio for Asian patients was 1.0. Confidence interval 0.75 to 1.32, not no difference. If you look at the non-Asians, the hazard ratio is 0.54 with a confidence interval of 0.38 to 0.71. Again, if you look at the PFS, uh, 0.34 non-Asians, um, that was a hazard ratio versus 0.55 in Asians. So going all the way back to the PFS data, again, you saw a slight trend suggesting OC Mertin was more effective in non-Asian versus Asians. Now, again, in the PFS data, both those um, hazard ratios were statistical significance only in the mature overall survival benefit that uh, we see the, the overall survival benefit of OCMRDIB appears to be limited to non-Asians. So why? Let's start with the EGFR mutation. Why would there only be an overall survival benefit OCMRDIB in the exon 19 deletion? Um, well, we have data of 
uh, in T790M mutations, where OCMRDB is the only TKI that's active uh, in, in non-small cell lung cancer, that EGFR mutation, T790M, OCMRDB versus chemo, the Aura 3, uh, again, patients all had received prior TKI therapy, we see that exon 19 was more sensitive uh, to the TKI, so there was a slight benefit uh, in that arm uh, compared to uh, the chemo arm relatively. In uh, the Aura 2 study, uh, the overall response rate with OCMertinib and exon 19 deletion was 77%, which is quite a bit higher than the 59% overall response rate we saw in the L85R mutation. So, uh, and we know from similar data with erlotinib and afatinib that exon 19 mutations just seem to be more sensitive to tyrosine kinase inhibitors than the L85R mutation. So that could be part of what we're seeing here. Uh, with the overall survival advantage being limited, it looks like, just to exon 19 mutations as opposed to L85R mutations. Now, what about the Asian versus non-Asian difference? Uh, could be, because it's a multi-center study, that this has to do with local treatment differences, maybe up front, maybe in the second-line setting, uh, maybe with regards to CNS-targeted therapy with radiation or surgical techniques. Uh, don't know. Um, could also have something to do with the imbalance of, or the use of a comparator arm that was two drugs. So again, most patients, two-thirds got gefitinib, uh, one-third got erlotinib. Uh, now, if you look at the distribution of Asian versus non-Asian, almost two-thirds of patients were Asian in this study. Um, and again, I think of gefitinib. When you read a gefitinib publication, it's almost always coming out of Asia, whereas erlotinib seems to be more used and studied here in the United States. So perhaps this is, um, maybe it is a race uh, difference. Um, maybe it is a drug difference. It's unfortunate they don't um, do a subgroup looking at uh, erlotinib versus gefitinib. Uh, and, you know, one potential explanation for a racial difference would be, for example, you know, polymorphisms and how drugs are metabolized. So just as an example, CYP2D6 uh, startinolyl, uh, which has, carries reduced uh, activity for metabolizing CYP2D6, which I bring up because gefitinib is a major substrate of both 3 4 and 2D6. 42% of East Asians have that startinolyl. That's the little frequency in Asians, 42% versus 3% in Caucasians. So there are, you know, differences in how gefitinib and erlotinib are metabolized. Uh, they're all metabolized by 3 or 4, but gefitinib does have that 2D6 pathway. Erlotinib has a little bit of 1A2, and ocmertinib is just 3 or 4. So maybe, who knows? Maybe it's a pharmacogenomic difference. But what I think we can take away is, you know, the trial design is not perfect, as we know, especially with regard to crossover. But there was no overall survival benefit, um, you know, in these L85AR exon 21 mutations. So, uh, for those patients, it's probably reasonable to save OCMertinib for uh, maybe second line. Maybe there is more benefit if you reserve OCMertinib for the second line setting since it is maybe a, a more potent TKI. Maybe its activity is better relative to whatever the second line treatment would be if those patients had already failed or lotnip or gefitinib. Uh, what's really too bad about the floor study, as I mentioned, is that they did not have pre-specified second line therapy. Which brings me to my next art. What is this, the fifth thing we're talking about here? So this is a phase two study published in, uh, in Lancet Oncology of this year. And this is optimal sequencing of enzalutamide and abiraterone in metastatic uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer, a phase two crossover study. So uh, about 200 patients, so small study, phase two study, randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either abiraterone followed by enzalutamide or enzalutamide followed by abiraterone. And the primary endpoint here is second progression-free survival event. 
So it's not looking at first PFS. It's looking at what happens after you get randomized or after you start your second line treatment, progression-free survival. So they end up with 75 patients in each arm that were that went on to second line treatment. Of course, there was some there's some dropout. And the most common reason not to go on to second line therapy was they weren't fit. So performance has declined. And so you have a 25% loss rate, kind of what you might expect for metastatic prostate cancer. If this was metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, like in the floor study, you might expect that number to be lower. Not 70% of patients not getting the adequate second line treatment, but maybe, you know, 30-40%. So what we see here is that the median progression-free survival second PFS was 19.3 months which was better than the 15.2 months. So that favored abiraterone followed by enzalutamide, and that was statistically significant. So what the authors hypothesize is, well, why would abiraterone be better up front than enzalutamide? That's not what the authors think is happening here. What they think is that enzalutamide is better in the second line compared to abiraterone in the second line because of the mutations that can happen at the antigen receptor. And they cite two specific mutations. I won't give you the, the names, but one of those mutations basically confers that corticosteroids can now stimulate the androgen receptor or that progesterone can stimulate the androgen receptor, in which case what type of drug would be better would be not a drug that decreases, say, like abiraterone that decreases testosterone concentrations, but a drug that inhibits the androgen receptor, like a very potent androgen receptor antagonist, like enzalutamide. And enzalutamide does retain its activity against those two mutations. So that's the theory. Now, again, this is just PFS, second PFS, and about a four-month improvement. So pretty minor um, difference. And my guess is if you did a power to study, a large study, look at overall survival, you probably wouldn't see a difference since there's only a, a four-month difference in median PFS. But it's certainly interesting and certainly laudable for uh, Kalaf and colleagues who did this study because I think it's a well-designed study and it's too bad we didn't do that with the Flora study. Uh, but certainly if all things all things are considered equal, we don't know that one is better than the other <clears throat> as far as abrone versus enzalutamide, I think this study does lend credence to the fact that, yeah, abiraterone up, up front makes sense compared to enzalutamide so that you reserve enzalutamide for that second line. So again, that's the idea that I was kind of harping on with the flora study is do a standard TKI up front and then see what happens if you put everyone on OCMertinib in the second line compared to OCMertinib followed by uh, whatever physician's choice in that second line center, followed by chemo. That's, you know, that's that second event is what we need to see uh, in these in these disease states that, that do respond well to these agents. <clears throat> okay, that's the end of the data for the most part. There were two uh, new drug approvals in the last month I haven't had a chance to talk about that don't uh, directly relate to oncology pharmacy, but when we say oncology, at least here in the United States, we often mean hematology oncology, and, and these are both um, you know, non-malignant uh, hematology drug approvals. Uh, so one is uh, November 8th, uh, Lucepatercept was approved for patients with beta thalassemia. Now, I'm not going to get into hemoglobinopathies, uh, but <laughs> it's an interesting drug. Lucepatercept is a recombinant fusion protein that binds to TGF beta. TGF is transforming or tumor in some data. They call it tumor, but transforming growth factor. And by binding to that, you get a decrease in SMAD two and three signaling. Don't know what SMAD does, but the ultimate result here is an increase in erythroid maturation, an increase in hemoglobin. So very similar end result to what we see with erythropoiesis stimulate agents. So now you can see why this may have some relevance down the road in the Oncopharm community. 
So besides being an increase in hemoglobin and a subsequent decrease in transfusion requirements in these beta-thal patients, there was also an increase in thromboembolic events and in blood pressure. Sounds familiar to ESAs. There also is a risk of embryo, embryo-fetal toxicity with this drug, just to throw that out there. And then the last uh, thing I have to talk about here, uh, we're going to get in just under that 30-minute mark. Uh, so uh, on November 20th, the FDA approved uh, uh, Jivosiran. And what's, this is the first drug of its kind that I know that's been FDA approved. Uh, I could be wrong about that. It's a small interfering RNA, or what's abbreviated SIRNA, uh, that basically it's covalently linked uh, it's covalently linked to a linker, to a ligand, uh, and what that does is allow this siRNA to uh, to be absorbed <coughs> into hepatocytes. Okay, and this is for acute hepatic porphyria. Um, seen there are a lot of different types of porphyria. I won't get into what this is or what it works, but what happens is this siRNA once it gets in the hepatocytes, it binds to specific RNA uh, that is responsible for the production of these like these proteins, these neurotoxins, you see lower levels of neurotoxins. This is a sub-Q injection once a month, um, basically targeting a, a DNA product, this RNA, that then would uh, be turned into a protein. So you can certainly imagine how this could be used to target uh, oncogenes, to, to silence oncogenic uh, expression, not of the gene necessarily, but of the gene product being RNA and the subsequent protein. So I think that's really exciting uh, down the road what we could get uh, as far as new drug approval. And again, that drug is called Jivosiran. Did I say it right? Yeah. Jivosiran. Jivosiran. Who knows? Uh, I hope you all, if you're celebrating Thanksgiving, you have a happy Thanksgiving, uh, that you eat too much, that you take a nap, and uh, hopefully, you know, the Chicago Bears win against the Detroit Lions. That's, that's my Thanksgiving hope, and I hope you all have uh, all your Thanksgiving hopes met as well. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at FarmDeetNip. Follow the podcast on Twitter at OncoFarmPod and at the same handle on Instagram. Rate review us in the iTunes store. Five stars, nice review. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of or tell us what you don't like to hear. And uh, you can also follow us on, you know, pretty much everywhere else you can listen to podcasts. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. thinking john you were just talking about you know this is not just oncology pharmacy but hematology pharmacy and you mentioned hemoglobinopathies and you didn't talk about the two drugs approved for sickle cell well i talked about one of them and then in literally 30 minutes after recording the podcast uh that you just listened to for about 30 minutes another drug was approved so i decided to cut that and put them both together here as a little addendum so first thing i'm going to talk about is the november 15th fda approval for Crinolizumab, which was approved for sickle cell disease in patients 16 years of age or older to decrease the incidence of vaso-occlusive crises, which is a very nice endpoint. Now, this data was actually published originally in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2017. So crinolizumab, it's a monoclonal antibody that binds to P-selectin, which is uh, stored in granules on endothelial cells and expressed on endothelial cells. And uh, it, it, P-selectin uh, on these endothelial cells will bind to sickle cells, and that can lead to uh, vaso-occlusion. 
Additionally, P-selectin can also bind to leukocytes, which then leads to inflammation, which further exacerbates uh, a vasoocclusive crisis, as well as binding to platelets, which can also lead to vasoocclusive crisis. So by blocking P-selectin, uh, the, the idea here is that the, the sickled red blood cells uh, do not stick, and therefore you decrease vasoocclusion and vasoocclusive crises. So this concept was tested uh, in a small study uh, there were fewer than 300 patients um, testing a low dose, 2.5 milligrams, and then the, what was eventually approved, 5 milligrams. And it's given IV every two weeks uh, for two doses, then every four weeks thereafter. So uh, in the approval, uh, or in the pivotal study, 67 patients received the drug versus placebo. And what you saw was a decrease in the rate of veno-occlusive crises per year, uh, 1.63 uh, crises a year in the crinolizumab group versus 2.98 in the placebo group, which is you could do some simple math, round that to 1.5, round that up to 3. It's almost a 50% decrease in the instance of vasoocclusive crisis, and certainly, uh, you know, at least one fewer per year in these patients. Now, uh, only about 60% of patients on this study were on um, hydroxyurea, um, so I think that's an important consideration. Uh, but the, the drug was pretty well tolerated, and when you look through the, uh, the data, there's not a lot of scary side effects. The most notable thing is actually a lab test interaction uh, where platelet clumping can occur. Uh, so, you know, CBCs for these patients should be drawn in a citrate tube as opposed to the normal EDTA tube. But it's always nice to see a new drug approved for sickle cell disease, especially one that decreases uh, vein-occlusive crises. Uh, or, obviously, if it improved overall survival, that would also be a welcomed endpoint uh, to be met. The second drug approved for sickle cell lymphoma, or sickle cell lymphoma what a thing, sickle cell disease this month, um, is uh, uh, Voxelator, which kind of sounds like a cartoon villain from my childhood. Uh, now, this pivotal trial was published uh, this year in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's approved for patients with sickle cell uh, ages 12 and up, and it is a hemoglobin S polymerization inhibitor. So the, the drug enters the plasma and then rapidly goes into the red blood cell. So it doesn't get a whole lot elsewhere in the body, binds to hemoglobin S, and then by binding to hemoglobin S, increases the affinity of hemoglobin S for oxygen. And of course, it's when oxygen is unloaded from hemoglobin S that you have that sickling or polymerization. So this should decrease sickling, which is you know the problem with sickle cell disease. So this sounds great. So the, trial, the study we have here, uh, you know, about 90 patients receiving one or two doses of, of uh, Voxelator. So 90 received Voxelator at the doses that were approved compared to placebo, and the endpoint that got the drug approved was change in hemoglobin. So in the Voxelator group, uh, the hemoglobin increased by 1.14 grams per deciliter, where in the placebo group, it went down by 0 0.08 grams per deciliter. So, okay, hemoglobin goes up. Uh, the hypothesis is there's less hemolysis, uh, and that's true, supported by some of the lab parameters, but really this is uh, focused mostly at a lab. Um, so does it decrease vasoocclusive crises is another thing that we would want to see. So these two drugs, one of them to me looks like it's gonna be more beneficial to patients, and that would be crinolizumab. Uh, but again, uh, you know, uh, we don't see a whole lot of sickle cell um, where I practice, and I know for some centers, like where I did my uh, internal, uh, uh, or my residency training, uh, sickle cell disease was an internal medicine um, uh, disease. It was handled by the internal medicine teams, uh, except in peds it was handled by pediatric hematology. 
Uh, here it's a little bit of a mix between whether uh, hematology manages these patients or internal medicine. So I uh, thought it was worth sharing anyway. And again, uh, I'm thankful for you as listeners and thankful for all the oncology farms out there and hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving.